You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this morning for Matthew 28. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. Next we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll read the verses 12 to 21, 42 to 58. And you can see that our text this morning for the sermon is taken from various verses out of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, 20, 26, 42, and 57. First of all, we turn to 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 12. But if, Paul writes, it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hoped in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. And then we turn to verse 42. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a spirit or natural body, there is also a spiritual body, so it is written. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The 
The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, And we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I preached to you this morning, this Easter Sunday morning, on 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I've mentioned the verses 14, 20, 26, 42, and 57. We have read most of those verses together. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, the other day, I was mailing some letters in Willowbrook Mall. And I was reminded that for most people, it would appear Easter is more about rabbits and bunnies than anything else. For a price, you can have your picture taken or the picture of your little darlings with the great, big, fuzzy Easter bunny. Or if Easter bunnies are not your thing, how about Easter and chocolates? Or Easter and flowers? But yet at the same time, how far removed all of this is from the true meaning of Easter? For each of the Gospels tells us that Easter is about something else entirely. It's about an empty tomb. It's about earth-shaking news, literally. It's about someone who has risen from the grave and conquered death. The contrast between what so many people think now And what the gospel proclaims could not be greater. 
or some might want to add more ridiculous. But then, if Easter today for many tends to be about bunnies, Easter for gospel writers is about very much an empty tube. But at the same time, Easter for the Apostle Paul is something slightly different again. It has to be admitted each one of the gospel writers takes his own particular perspective on the great event. So does the Apostle Paul. A moment ago, we read from his great Easter account, if you will, and what's it all about? Of course, it's about Jesus Christ. It's about his resurrection and all the things related to that. But, you know, there's also something else here. It's about the words, if, but, and therefore. You might say those are the three key words that hold this entire glorious chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 together. And they're worthy this morning, I dare say, of a closer look. And so I preach to you this morning on the theme, the great if, but, therefore, of the Easter Gospel. We're first going to consider a vexing question and thereafter a firm retort and finally a confident conclusion. Well, beloved, the church of Corinth to which this letter was originally written, as you may know, was a church riddled with controversy. Why, almost every chapter deals with a new problem, a new issue, a new kind of disagreement. And the same goes for 1 Corinthians chapter 15, for there the Apostle Paul has to deal with the matter of the resurrection of the dead. Apparently, some people in the church at Corinth taught that while Christ had indeed been raised from the dead, there really was no resurrection of the dead for believers. In other words, they said there is a disconnect here between Christ and his followers. But is that true? Can this be said? In the verses 12 and following, the Apostle Paul shows step by step what a ridiculous position this really is. And Paul strives to make this clear by a whole series of ifs. If this, if that, if this. The first one you can find in verse 13, where Paul writes, If, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ has not been raised. Here he is stating emphatically that the resurrection of Christ and the believers is something that is intricately linked and woven together. You cannot have the one without the other. You can argue it both ways. If no raised Christ, no raised saints. If no raised saints, no raised Christ either. You just cannot divorce the two. You can't ever drive a wedge. And that's really good to know. No one and nothing can drive a wedge between Christ and his people. 
And you know, it's now upon this kind of a premise that the Apostle Paul builds further. Look at verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Here he is saying that the message of the risen Christ is central and fundamental to the preaching of the gospel. As a matter of fact, there is no gospel without it. If we cannot preach Christ died and raised, we have no real message for the world. Our preaching loses its power, its uniqueness, its distinctiveness. And in addition, it also zaps your faith. Think about it. What sense does a still dead Savior make today? Why bother to believe in him if he's still in the grave? What difference does he make if he's still entombed? You see what Paul's getting at? And furthermore, Paul states, if Christ has not been raised, then the apostles are nothing more than a bunch of false witnesses. You go back to the verses 5 to 8 of this great chapter. And there you have a list of all of those who, who claim to have seen him after his death. And it's kind of a long list. Peter, the twelve, or the eleven, the five hundred plus brothers who saw him, James, the twelve again, last of all, Paul himself. All these people claim to have seen him. They are the eye and the ear witnesses. There's resurrection. And if Christ has not been raised, then none of them have really seen him. And they're nothing else than a bunch of false witnesses, liars. People who in the Old Testament would have been put to death. But there's more. For if Christ has not been raised, then believers have another problem with their faith. Paul says it's not simply a useless faith. No, it becomes an utterly futile faith. He says, then you are still in your sins. Imagine that. Dare to imagine that. Here a person believes in Christ as Savior. He or she commits their life to Him, finds real relief and happiness and joy in the knowledge that their sins, big and small, minor and major, ugly and grotesque, have all been wiped away. Only wait a minute. For if Christ has not been raised, and the guarantee of forgiveness goes up in smoke. For ask yourself this question, how do we as Christians know that our sins really, truly have been forgiven? How can we be sure and certain? Well, the gospel says there's only one way, and, and that's in the fact of the resurrection of Christ from the dead. The resurrection supplies the proof 
When God the Father raises the Son to life and to glory, then we know for sure the payment for sin has been received and accepted. Hallelujah, our sins have been forgiven. And the resurrection of Christ is our guarantee. And so you see, if Christ has not been raised, we are still in our sins. And if we are still in our sins, then we are still under judgment and condemnation. And we are still going down the road to hell. And the Christian face, what a colossal waste of time. And one more thing. If Christ has not been raised, Paul says, we are to be pitied more than all men. Why is that? Why are we more to be pitied than others? Well, do you know of people who have higher hopes than we do? Isn't it so that the Christians are number one when it comes to the great expectation department? We set our hope on resurrection, on eternal life, on heaven, on a new heaven and a new earth, on a new Jerusalem, on a new heaven and a new earth, on Christ coming back with the saints and this great reunion and this glorious supper. We have such great, huge, glorious hopes. But beloved, if Christ has not been raised, it all comes crashing down. For this entire house of hope and glory is really built on one fundamental fact. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if that hasn't happened, Paul says, we're crushed. All of our hopes are dashed. And we truly are then the most miserable of people. No one else has soared so high, but in the end crashed so spectacularly. And so, beloved, you can begin to see how the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 drives home the fact that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is no minor doctrinal, theoretical, theological matter. It's no trivial event. Our faith, our hope, our life rests upon it. And to replace Easter with no resurrection from the dead, And to fill it with all kinds of fine-sounding words about hope and confidence, but which have no substance and foundation. And even worse, to replace it with a bunch of Easter bunnies. It's beyond absurd. It's satanic mockery. So you see how the Apostle Paul explores the big if. But then there is also, Paul says, not just the big if. There is an even bigger but. And you can find a whole series of those big buts 
in verse 20, 23, 35, and 30, and so on. And of all of these buts, the first one in verse 20 is the most important. There Paul writes, but, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Easter is no pipe dream. The resurrection of Christ is not a fiction. It's not an illusion. It's not the last desperate gasp of desperate people. It's reality. It's fact. And the proof, beloved, is everywhere. You can read any one of the Gospels. And essentially, they all tell the same tale. Women go to the tomb not knowing what they'll find, and they find it open and empty. And disciples go there and they find the same. And the grave clothes are still there, but there isn't no body to be found. And then the Lord appears to Mary and to the women and to the Emmaus travelers and to the eleven minus Thomas and the eleven with Thomas and to Peter and to James and to so many others. Of all the miracles mentioned in the scripture, this one has the most witnesses. But it has not just witnesses. It also has glorious consequences. It has immense consequences, for example, in the life of all the apostles. What else explains their transformation from confused, weak, yellow-bellied followers to strong, clear, brave witnesses of the gospel? Do you have any other explanation for this stupendous change in their lives other than the reality of the resurrection? It changed their entire life. Their whole outlook. Their personalities. Everything. And part of that is because they realize that the resurrection of Jesus Christ has consequences not only for them but also for death. Paul writes that now the first fruits, that Christ is the first fruits of those have fallen asleep. What this means is that Christ's resurrection is not a resurrection in isolation. It's not just about Him. He's not the only one who is to be treated in this kind of miraculous way. No, He is the first fruits. Which means He's about the first of many. Language is the language of harvest. When one apple, one grape, one cherry appears on a tree or a vine, then you know that more are coming. And you get ready to pick the fruit, perhaps by the bushels full. Well, so it is with Christ. When he's raised from the dead, he is number one, but he's not the only one. 
He's the indicator. He's the proof. He's the certainty that soon more, many more, will follow. Paul writes, but each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. So what does that tell you? Surely it tells you the harvest is coming. One day soon, we will see Christ return in glory. But when we see him, we will not see just him. He'll come accompanied by a great and mighty throng of people. And soon more will join him. And the harvest, the harvest will be eye-popping. And something else. It'll be death-defeating. Paul says about Christ that he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. You and I know Christ has many enemies. All sorts of powers arrayed against him. There are the nasty powers of this life, hate, violence, racism, immorality, perversity, persecution. There are those nasty powers behind this life, Satan, his allies, falsehood, deception, lying, and murder. Paul refers to them as dominions, authorities, and powers. And he says, one day, they're all going to be destroyed. And that also means the last one, called death. It's the last and the greatest enemy. Tied to death are the causes of death. Sickness, accidents, old age. How many lives do they not terrorize and unsettle? How many dreams do they not destroy? How many tears do sicknesses and accidents and old age not cause? In so many ways, you know, our life is a broken life. Of course, there are good days, thankfully. But have you ever noticed how the good days don't last? And the bad days always seem to break in and spoil the party. And in addition, we all know That no matter how many good days we may have in this life, the end will not be good. For the end is death. But now, along comes the gospel. The good news of the resurrected Christ. And what does it do? It proclaims the rise of a better day. A day in which death will be defeated and dethroned for good. And not just a better day, but also a much better body. There's another but in this chapter. 
You find it in verse 35. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come at last? And you know, here we get often into the realm of speculation. We're a curious bunch. We all want to know all kinds of answers to all sorts of questions. And perhaps none of the questions of life attract us more than the questions related to the afterlife. And to some extent, the Apostle Paul in this chapter goes into that kind of thing. But not totally. But what Paul wants us to see is the big picture. And the big picture is that when Christ returns and the harvest begins, that we are going to receive new, revamped, restructured, perfected bodies. And indeed, we're going to get such improved bodies that we cannot even imagine what they're going to be like. Of course... We can say, well, they're not going to be sickly, obviously. They're not going to be weak. They're not going to be sinful. They're not going to be ugly, unsuitable, finite. And Paul even goes on to say, well, they're going to be splendid, imperishable, glorious, powerful, and spiritual. He uses the analogy of a seed. You ever look at a bunch of seeds? There really isn't much to look at, is there? Usually they're, they're little and they're kind of brown and dirty looking. And often they're really, really wrinkled. And if you didn't know any better, you'd take these seeds and you'd throw them in the garbage because you don't see anything in them. But you plant them in the ground and you wait a while. And the most beautiful flower emerges, where a great stately tree rises as the years go by. And you ask yourself, how can something so beautiful come out of something so insignificant? And Paul says, that's what's going to happen to our bodies. They're small, they're brown, they're wrinkled. But one day, They're going to blow your mind away. So full of beauty and glory. And so the Apostle Paul saying, today we see dimly, but one day we're going to see and experience glory. One day, and I've said it to you before, we're going to have new bodies for a new life on a new heaven and a new earth for a new future. Everything wonderfully, gloriously new. And now because of that, Paul says there is the therefore of the gospel. You find it in verse 28. Therefore, in light of all the ifs and the buts, therefore, My dear brothers and sisters, by the way, stand for Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. 
If Christ is your Savior, if one day He raises you, if He gives you a new body, then it behooves you to live in sync, in harmony, with all that's coming. If this is your future, and it is, then don't you dare walk away from it or become indifferent to it or stick up your nose at it. No, you take it, you embrace it, you sing about it, you rejoice in it, and you persevere in it as well. Let nothing distract you or undermine you. You see how the Apostle Paul uses the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a great incentive for believers to live and to stand their ground. We're supposed to use it to stand fast. And you know, not much of that's happening these days in North America or in Europe. I don't know whether you realize it or not, but in North America and in Europe, people who used to claim to be Christians are leaving the gospel in droves. They've got better things. Big screen televisions, iPods and iPads and holidays and money to burn, at least some of them do. They're succumbing to a flood of secularism and materialism and hedonism, which, by the way, means the love of pleasure. And all paints a really depressing picture. So many are not bothering to stand firm, anchored in the resurrection gospel. But thankfully, that's not the entire picture. You go to Asia. You go to Africa, you go to Latin America. What do you hear? The gospel of Jesus Christ is making great inroads. Many people are embracing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And what does that tell you? The candlestick, beloved, is moving. Don't close your eyes to the reality. It's moving. You see it today. That should be a warning for us and an incentive as well as to how we live in an ever-increasingly godless, immoral, self-preoccupied, selfish society. But at the same time, may it not only be a warning to us, but may it drive us to Jesus Christ and cause us to stand firm And to keep on working out our salvation because it's not in vain. So many things in this life are vanity. Vanity, vanity, says the preacher. But this is not vanity. And so stand firm. Know that your work done for the Lord is never, ever in vain. And remind yourself also this Easter 2011 
we have a risen, resurrected Lord, and we are part of a great and glorious risen and resurrected people. Easter is so much more than bunnies and chocolate. It's about life. Glorious, resurrected, renewed, eternal life. Life in Christ. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.